0: Hi, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hare.
1: And I'm Joe Hellerstein. Today, we have a special bonus episode where Jeff and I are going to take a quick dive into a couple of topics, mostly focused around the year in data. A look back on what was hot and what was not. A lot of stuff happened this year. Uh, Facebook went down. Remember, that was a big deal for like a day. Um, On a larger note, you know, SQL seems to be back, right? And Hadoop is dead. But uh, what's up with the stuff in the middle, like Spark and Flink and all those other things that were supposed to be, you know, what replaced SQL? And and streaming databases, are, are they finally real? Is this the, the year that they, they came back to the fore and finally made a difference? Because it's been a research topic forever. These are all, to be honest, kind of in, in the weeds, though, Jeff. You tend to skew a little more philosophical. What's your, your big picture list for the hot topics this year in data?
0: Yeah, thanks, Joe. I really think of three big topics that at least have been um, on my mind, and that includes the continued rise of the cloud um, issues in data ethics, and then of course the continuing covid pandemic um, so maybe we can visit each in turn you know perhaps you saw recently you know the spat online between snowflake and databricks, who has the better uh, you know TPC benchmark results and You know, and and who's being more honest? And, you know, of course, you know, lots of people get value from from both systems. And I think sort of what's unspoken there is, of course, this assumption that this is all running in the cloud. And this is old news because this was predicted years ago. We've seen the rise of cloud computing as the place that data work gets done. But I think, you know, in this year, we really saw just more industry and a lot more of government continuing to move to the cloud. And so I think this includes lots of benefits, particularly the flexibility to pick best-of-breed tools. So like using Trifacta uh, for something like data cleaning, then moving your data for querying, whether that's in BigQuery, Snowflake, Databricks, or other databases. And then, of course, reporting and visualization with tools like Tableau and Looker, really having the environment to put together the pieces that are the best for your organization. Again, not new news, but just I think it would be, uh, you know, Inappropriate not to point out like this is really where the action is. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on that, and also, you know, maybe looking ahead, you know, what's in the store for the future of the cloud.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of glad you brought up the little kerfuffle there with uh, Databricks and Snowflake because actually I I'm friends with the founders of both, and so I'm super stuck in the middle on that one. Um, uh, good people on both sides, um, and I actually thought the You know, some people were were razzing on the debate being a little bit harsh, but compared to the old days of like Oracle suing professors at universities for doing benchmarks, (laughs) everybody's being pretty polite uh, and it's mostly in a good spirit.
0: Yeah, I I learned about the DeWitt clause from that spat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Dave DeWitt was uh, one of the advisors when I was doing my PhD at Wisconsin and and he got sued by essentially Larry Ellison for benchmarking Oracle and uh, Mm – Uh, There was this clause that everybody called the DeWitt clause that got introduced into most software, actually, that you couldn't publish benchmarks on commercial software. If you had a license to the software, you were not allowed to publish a benchmark. So it got known as the DeWitt clause for Dave DeWitt, the famous uh, database researcher who was doing a lot of benchmarking in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But coming back to to what you were talking about um, with uh, Snowflake, one of the things they said that I thought was kind of interesting in their post on this was they said, look, our customers – You know, they don't care about performance primarily. Performance, is is, as long as it's adequate, is acceptable, they more care about easy use. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so dramatic. It's partly just, you know, the rise of computing, but it's also um, the ability in the cloud to have performance go away. Mm -hmm. You might remember, Jeff, from uh, uh, the Wrangle Summit that Trifacta held this spring. We had Benoit Dajvi from uh, Snowflake, one of the founders, talk about their vision of, of the data cloud. And the thing he said that really struck me is he he has the slogan in the cloud. Fast is free. And his anecdote for that was they had a customer who used to run this big weekend long job on their on-premises database. It took the whole weekend to run and they would tee everything up on Friday to get it just working. But because it's like embarrassingly parallel work, when they switched to Snowflake, they could spend the same amount of money on roughly the same amount of machines to run it over the weekend that they did on-prem, or they could spend that very same amount of money for way more machines to run it in an hour. Yeah. You know, the cost was the same, it's just the latency, the turnaround time in the cloud. You can rent as many machines as you like, you know, for a shorter amount of time. Uh, So it's just incredible really how easy things have become uh, in the cloud this past few years and how that's really coming to fruition
0: watch out i think they're coming for you joe i know
1: i know i live in the big city of berkeley
0: um
1: what about you know um visualization tools in the cloud that's your area of expertise jeff what's been changing
0: there oh interesting question i think i'd argue maybe not much i think you know in terms of you know the major approaches to you know basic exploratory visualization and reporting i think the the models that have worked in previous years are, are continued to be applied it's just um you know, instead of hitting your on-prem database, you know, you might be more likely to be pulling from your cloud database instead. And so similar visualization features, um, you know, ability to publish reports, et cetera, but really moving that into a more modern environment. That said, I think, you know, where there's a lot of potential for more more interesting applications is um, looking at more domain-specific applications of visualization. So going beyond the sort of standard BI and reporting world, There are a lot of different analysis and and data visualization needs uh, that can be met with perhaps more targeted solutions. I know around observability and um, security and and auditing, um, there's a number of of, young companies that have been making progress on that front. And then I think particularly when it comes to machine learning workloads and how are we going to make sense of all the training data, test data that are going in, trying to monitor that for potential bias or other issues, what's the role of visualization in helping do model explanation and model assessment, you know, ideally you know, prior to deployment so you can catch problems, but then also for monitoring once they're out. I think these sort of newer use cases is where I see some of the more exciting opportunities for visualization to be applied. Joe, I know you've been involved in research on the cloud. Where do you think it goes from here?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that was sort of hot over the past year was uh, serverless computing, which is something my team worked on quite a lot, which is cool. It's sort of the first publicly available sort of cloud vendor provided way for you to program the cloud. Mm. So that's pretty cool. Like the cloud is a computer that you get to program. I mean, it's the most amazing computer ever assembled by humankind. So we should should be excited about that. But honestly, serverless is going to take time. And I think right now it's kind of small-ish. One of the things we're talking about now a lot with my colleagues at Berkeley is the idea about multi-cloud and this vision we have called the sky, which is the thing above the cloud. <laughs> Very uh, <so>, clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Scott Shanker gets credit for that. Scott's an amazing uh, internet architect uh, pioneer, if you don't know him. But the idea there is, as you think about vendors, and we can think about Trifecta, we can think about Snowflake, we can think about Databricks, had to build Applications that run on all the clouds, all the public clouds, huge engineering effort, right? Customers get the benefit of some intermediaries between them and their cloud provider to varying degrees with different products. Um, but think about a future where we have like brokers, like insurance brokers for cloud services. Hmm. So you want to assemble some storage, some compute. Maybe you want to pick a, uh, somebody who's going to run Kafka for you or somebody who's going to run Postgres for you. But you don't really care who. And there's some people in the middle who will find you, you know, a month's rent of your favorite services um, for the best price. And you start to see these economic incentives where like, yeah, that's probably going to happen, right? Um, Because you really, you can already assemble a pretty good deal, actually, if you go across clouds. And then you think about well, what would happen. There was an announcement recently, NVIDIA said that they were going to start to, do a uh, partnership where they were going to set up GPU machines uh, publicly available on the internet. So imagine a GPU cloud that is run by NVIDIA. NVIDIA is not going to build every AWS service, but they might have a specialized cloud that's good Mm -hmm. at the stuff they're good at. And so I want to put that together with, I don't know, some storage at AWS and some um, uh, enclave protected privacy aware compute at Microsoft, right. And build a specialized application. So this idea of, You know, the cloud vendors having a lock on the future is challenged by this idea that maybe brokers will hide them and more commoditize the idea of uh, cloud services. Um, So we're really excited about that. We think it's economics research. We think it's computer science research. But over the next years, we also think it's going to become reality.
0: I'm wondering what that means in terms of uh, the necessary data movement, if you're really able to broker across these different clouds.
1: So data gravity is, is a real thing. And, you know, locale, not shipping your data around is usually a win. But even today, you can uh, find scenarios where if you're going to do, say, a big machine learning training workload and then a serving of the models, you might move data around to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the economics issues there is Amazon, in particular, charges huge egress costs for your data. They have a markup on taking your data out of their cloud. Is that sustainable? If, for example, Microsoft and Google team up to say, "Hey, we don't, we're not going to do egress costs. You know, we're going to we're going to fight off the market leader by offering things closer to cost and not marking things up." So the, the economics around, like, what you know, kind of where is their arbitrage and where is their fat in the? Uh, in the economic models right now, you know, incentives will push people to remove that fat.
0: So, yes, a cloudy future remains.
1: Uh, cloudy, but, you know, the skies may open. Yeah.
0: Well, with that, I'd like to move on uh, to the the second big theme I wanted to raise, um, and that's data ethics. So, of course, yeah, machine learning, you know, remains a juggernaut. But alongside that, I think you're seeing a growing public awareness of some of the pitfalls um, with you know data work, even more generally, that includes you know bias in the data that we're using to, to train and deploy models, and also bias induced by modeling approaches themselves. And we see this play out, you know, in continued strong interest, at least in the research world, for explainable AI methods. Um, in the public sphere, you have films like Coded Bias on Netflix, bringing a lot of these issues to the forefront. And even the firing of AI ethics leads such as Tim Gebru and Margaret Mitchell at Google, um, you know, in part for for writings critical of their employer. And so how well can the industry regulate itself is a question that many people are asking. And so I'm curious, you know, Joe, what your reactions are along these lines. And also, what might it portend for the future of data ops and particularly ML ops?
1: Yeah, this is a really great topic, Jeff. And I know you have a lot of thoughts. So I'm going to throw this question back at you afterwards. But I'm just going to add fuel to this fire. Um, We've also seen controversy around, you know, uh, carbon footprint of cloud computing, right? You have these giant data centers. Are they, are they bad for the environment? Or in fact, is maybe the computing industry um, better at managing energy resources than most industries, which is another argument I've heard on the other side. Uh, so controversies around like, you know, global warming and computing, how does that relate? So that's an ethical issue. But let me, let me get back to you on some of the bias in AI questions and, and hand it back to you. You know, what are some of the worst examples that you're aware of in this space?
0: Oh, worst examples? Well, wow, it's a, <laughs> a list. I mean, I think you've certainly seen, um, you know, examples online of, you know, deployed classifiers, including for photo collections that are then tagging people as animals. So things are just really insulting to people's uh, basic humanity. You know, in my own research, like we've built visualization tools to look at things like word embeddings, where you take, you know, tons of documents and you learn, you know, a language model where you basically represent words as points in this high dimensional space. And then just go ahead and take a couple terms that are, you know, definitionally male, you know, and definitionally female, like father, mother, son, daughter, and then just find the attribute vector that connects them. And then look at how all the other terms are distributed relative to that. You immediately see all kinds of gender stereotypes, many of which are completely inappropriate and harmful to downstream tasks. So, I mean, I think you have everything from, from the, the data coming in and how people are represented to the, the intermediate models, these latent spaces that power a lot of machine learning techniques. And then you have, you know, the issues in terms of then what kinds of decisions um, are, are being made subsequent with those models. And so I think you don't have to look far um, at any of these levels to notice that, that there are problems that we really have to think through and deal with.
1: It's also interesting to see the ethical issues in how data gets used. Um, I've been hanging out a little bit with folks in the law school here at Berkeley, um, and there's pretty scary stories about how AI technologies can be used to convict people and even put them on death row.
0: Yeah, loans, um, sentencing, absolutely.
1: Yeah, um, another aspect of that that's really interesting that we're focused on is: can we get no-code and low-code tools to public defenders so that they have sort of, you know, sort of similar. Uh, advantages, digital advantages, data advantages going into cases that is prosecution. Um, and as a concrete example, police misconduct. Mm-hmm. So obviously a huge topic this past year. Cops who uh, do the wrong thing um, often get fired and then get hired in some other county. Right. And when a cop goes on the stand in a trial, it's considered to be evidence of truth. It's not considered to be opinion. Unless you can uh, establish the um, unbelievability, uh, of the police officer in question. Alright, so what happens is these, uh, defense attorneys, often public defenders who don't have any technical skills, are trying to dig through data from like OCR, police department documents, from body cams, from 911 calls try to figure out if there's evidence that this cop is trustworthy or not. Mm. And they're not technical folks. So we're doing research at Berkeley kind of along the lines of trifecta. What are some no-code, low-code tools for letting people sift through this data who aren't technical folks? Because in the end of the day, the legal system in the U.S. is, you know, the prosecution makes its best case. The defense makes its best case. And real human beings, our fellow citizens, decide, and then judges decide on sentencing. Um, it's not a statistical process. It's a storytelling process.
0: Mm-hmm. But the
1: data that leads to that storytelling is, is not uh, equitably accessible in terms of uh, time and skills uh, for people. So that's one that I've gotten real excited about recently trying to do better. at.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really important. Um, you know, in, in fact, in my own research and in, in my collaborators, we've been looking at tools to do Basically, what's the equivalent of unit testing for machine learning models and what are ways to do um, error analysis, really find the root causes of what kinds of inferences can models reliably make and and what they can't do. And I think this whole aspect of sort of stochastic software engineering as applied to um, machine learning models is incredibly important. But it still really focuses on you know, the people responsible for, for building and deploying those models. Um, what really resonates uh, with me about what you're explaining is how can we bring tools like, to a more general public so that they can contest these models and, and take action in response. I think that's an incredibly important area going forward.
1: I love what you're saying about unit testing for machine learning. That is so cool. I'm reminded of there's this sort of Google definition of software engineering is it's programming integrated over time. So the idea that you have to—it's not just sitting around and writing code. It's the process of that code over time and people adding to it and modifying it, and testing it. Machine learning and sort of data science are not engineering processes yet, and we need to get all that kind of over time collaboration, engineering, you know, monitoring, testing into the process. And how that relates to to bias, for example, is is an awesome, awesome idea. That's yeah. really great. Theory.
0: Yeah, and I'm also heartened by you know, a whole you know, generation of new scholars who are really looking at this. You know, many um, you know your colleagues and students of yours, yours at Berkeley, but but also elsewhere. I, I think a really important area to watch.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Timnit Gebru, you know, one of her close colleagues, at Abebe, who's another Ethiopian female computer scientist, is at Berkeley as a faculty member working on ethical AI issues just like this. And I've learned a lot already from, from her being at Berkeley. Um, she's also famous for having co-founded Black in AI, I think with Timnit, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So um, when they were grad students.
0: That then brings us to another you know, happy topic, so to speak, but I think one that's really important to the data world um, and and the world outside of data, which of course is the the ongoing COVID nineteen pandemic. And I think you know, from a from a data perspective, you know, in the last you know eighteen months or more, I think in response to the pandemic, we've seen a proliferation of both data analysis and visualization uh, in, in an interesting way. I mean, I think visualization and various forms of, of Um, data crunching have really come to the forefront of of the public consciousness, right? Who would have predicted before that, that people would be familiar with seven-day moving averages, per capita rates, and even SIR epidemiological models, right? Amazing. But at the same time, I think alongside that, we're seeing numerous examples of misleading analyses and visualizations. This is ranging from the ham-handed to the statistically savvy. Um, But nevertheless, you know, many examples that I'd say torture or willfully misinterpret a data set to arrive at a foregone conclusion. And so as we talk about media literacy, there's, of course, you know, data and statistical literacy. And I think we're seeing this play out and evolve in very different ways in the public sphere um, up to today.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I do think, you know, this is a case where um, people are actually looking at the data some, even in the in the very public eye, there's charts. And that's relatively unusual in our political and national process. I remember talking to a funder at one of the large charitable organizations in Silicon Valley. And when I say large, I mean really, really large. (laughs) And they were saying their person who works on on, uh, topics like this says, you know, I've never run into a senator who's told me, gosh, I would have voted differently on that bill if the data had told me a different story. Mm -hmm. They're like, we don't work on that. We work on, on essentially influencing people through traditional lobbying because Washington is not data driven. Which was pretty depressing. However, with the COVID, at least, we're seeing, you know, this the fact that people want to manipulate the data, both for, for good and for maybe not so good, um, at least says that the data is in the story. Um, and I find that somewhat heartening. Hmm. Now, of course, Jeff, it's not just about what chart you build. It's also about getting the data and getting it cleaned up and getting it right. And I know that Jeff has been involved in some of that. You want to tell us a little bit about... What you've seen there?
0: Yeah, and I think this uh, brings us to uh, maybe hopefully a more optimistic note going forward. Um, so, for example, I just had a great conversation uh, with Francois Picard, who uh, works at the Washington State Department of Health, and she had this interesting observation that we have you know, seen fifty years of disinvestment in public health infrastructure, but that's changing. Um, you know, in part due to the response to COVID. Um, So public health data systems, you know, are needed to aid epidemiologists and policymakers, and they're actually getting investment now. So modernizing the data stack, um, you know, moving to the cloud and really pulling in lots of different data sources and then processing them, processing them really in in real time uh, to be able to provide guidance um, and an organized response to the pandemic. And so not only should this be helpful in terms of our, our current situation, but hopefully also lay the groundwork um, so that we're better prepared to identify, monitor, and respond to future diseases. Um, and the work being done there in Washington State is just one example. And Joe, I know that you know of others um, you know, using Trifacta and other data management tools to really help um, combat the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I have to say this is one of the things I'm most proud of um, on the Trifacta front in the last uh, year, year and a half, is um, the Center for Disease Control uses Trifacta to clean up data uh, and, and, you know, automate and speed through the work that they've had to do over the course of the year. And it's the stuff that we all know about in data engineering, right? It's dates. It's addresses. All that stuff, if you're trying to track the movement of cases and diseases being reported at the county level, it's all the stuff you usually have to work on. And so Trifacta has been helping the CDC do that. Um, Another great example, uh, University of Oxford, they have this Infectious Diseases Data Observatory. That's one of the largest international collections of clinical data related to COVID-19. And again, it's like thousands of hospitals and health institutes, and they're sharing like patient data, treatment data, symptom data. Um, And, you know, it comes in all the forms you, you, you imagine, spreadsheets, stuff coming out of stats, packages. Um, and again, using Trifacta at their end to try to put this together and make sense of what's going on. Yet another one is Genomics England. Is you, You've been using Trifacta this year to understand genetic risk factors in the patient responses to COVID-19. Um, and I have no doubt that there are others in the data industry who take credit for having helped. Through the pandemic and in, in the science of it, you know, clinical trials, um, national statistics across the world. I wrote a few uh, web crawlers and put them up on GitHub myself to try to pull down COVID data and help people clean it up. You know, I think I saw a lot of community contribution um, as well as uh, corporate kind of um, professional uh, activity in the space this past year. And it, it makes me feel good about the data industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen yeah that entire gamut you know, of use cases as well. Everything from like what are the uh, two hundred different ways people spell Tuck Willow Washington and have to standardize that data so you can do accurate tracking of of, of you know viral cases uh, and other aspects you know all the way to really having orchestrated production data flows, where I've seen examples where you know, massive databases with over a 1,000 columns that are then overwhelming for the analysts who don't want to work with them if they're only focused on one particular aspect of the problem at that time. So coming up with cleaned and well-packaged you know, and more uh, digestible data sets that are more directly responsible uh, for different analytic tasks. Like all of these types of um, you know data engineering tasks, you know are critical as part of the infrastructure to allow you know analysts and others um, to to rapidly and accurately respond. So, yeah, and really important and you know you know life or death stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad we ended on a positive note there, Jeff. Thanks. Just to recap Jeff's list of the biggest topics, and I, I liked where he went with this. He skewed he skewed big picture. The cloud number three. Data ethics number two. COVID-19 number one, but at least, you know, data's being used for good there. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for coming along with us, folks. We'll wrap up there this week. If you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at dataranglers at trifacta.com.
0: As always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.